Mark chapter 2, 1 to 12. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralysed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralysed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. This is the word of the God. Well, welcome along. It's uh, with great pleasure that we've got our guest speaker back for the second week. I know for many of you, you'll be familiar with John Dixon, Dr. Reverend John Dixon, Anglican minister, academic speaker, but it's a great pleasure always to introduce him. He is also a friend, and so he's back for the second week, and he's unlike in previous times we've had him where he's done his own series, he's joining our series. And I said to John, can you just fit in with what we're doing? And he's uh, very graciously said, happy to do that. So can you welcome Dr. John Dixon with us again this morning? <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the, the truth is, when uh, Bruce gave me this text to speak on, I was a little disappointed. Uh, partly because I didn't already have a sermon on it and uh, I wasn't super confident I had the time to give this passage what it deserved Uh, and partly because it's such a familiar passage and uh, the preachers in the room will know that sometimes the familiar passages are the hardest ones to preach on. So I dutifully sat down on Monday and I read and reread and reread this passage And I had the weirdest experience. It was like digging an ever-deepening well and trying the water and thinking, that's sweet, and then noticing there was another layer beneath and digging and tasting and it kept on going down and down until it was a rich, rich draft of water. To change metaphors, uh, uh, the experience was a bit like... um, being introduced to someone for the first time and not thinking anything of it, you know, at the time and then later realizing that they were someone pretty important. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. About 10 years ago, I met a fit young bloke in Wisconsin um, and his name was Aaron, but I kept on calling him Adam because I didn't know who he was. Uh, And it turns out that he really was Aaron. Uh, His name was Aaron Rodgers and he's the $20 million a year quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. You only make that mistake once. Uh, 
And in a way, our paragraphs are like that for me. They present us initially with just Jesus the teacher, right? You dig a little deeper and you meet God. Let me see if I can convince you of that. Before we get to that fun and games, um, let me reiterate something I know Bruce said week one. Uh, I had to listen to week one just to see the setup, and he made the very good point that even if you're not sure what to make of Christianity, Mark's gospel is an excellent, clear, historical window into this extraordinary life of Jesus for a couple of historical reasons that Bruce uh, brought out. The, the first is, we know that Mark's gospel was written closer in time to Jesus than even the best historical biography we have for the emperor who ruled at the same time as Jesus. That is an extraordinary thing. Uh, Bruce pointed out that our uh, gospel of Mark was written 30 to 35 years after Jesus. The very best source we have for Emperor Tiberius, in fact, the best source we have for the entire history of the Imperial Rome, was written by Tacitus, but 80 years after Tiberius. Now, why is that significant? When Tacitus wrote about Emperor Tiberius, there was no one alive in his day who knew Tiberius. When Mark wrote, there were plenty of people still alive who had personally known Jesus. And I don't just mean his um, inner circle of uh, disciples. Uh, we know that the wider family members of Jesus, people like Simeon, his cousin, whom you may have never heard of, we know from historical sources outside the Bible, was active in the 60s in Jerusalem, the time when Mark's gospel was written. That really counts. And in fact, that's the other thing that Bruce said about uh, Mark's gospel that's really worth absorbing. We know that Mark's gospel is based on the ultimate eyewitness testimony. Mark, uh, Bruce said that um, Mark relied on the testimony of Peter. Now, there are very good historical reasons uh, to conclude that, and Bruce laid them out uh, in week one. So if you want to go back and have a listen to the details, I do recommend that. Uh, my point though, is without any spiritual faith, you can pick up Mark's gospel and know that you have a pretty strong historical window into the most influential life in Western history. And part of that influence that Jesus has had comes from the first layer. As we open up this passage and dig, the first layer is clearly that Jesus was a hugely popular teacher. Uh, the opening paragraph of our passage is very safe territory for everyone. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people had heard that he'd come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Everything about this passage is plausible, including the setting. Um, Capernaum is a real place on the map. In fact, you can go to Capernaum today and see the remains of first century houses. And uh, I know several people of, uh, from St. Matthew's Manley have come with me on my historical tours of Israel, and you have stood on the streets of first century uh, Capernaum. 
So that's entirely plausible. It's a real place. This was a real time. The other really plausible thing, of course, is Jesus preaching. For some, that's the only really plausible thing about Jesus. It's like the only thing we know. Yeah, he was a teacher. And that's uh, how come he's had such an impact. Well, he had a massive impact in his day. In fact, we have a non-Christian reference from the first century to the impact of Jesus. It comes from Flavius Josephus, who writes, about this time there lived Jesus a wise man, for he was one who wrought surprising feats, a reference to the miracles, and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. Non-Christian writer, speaking of Jesus' fame. Exactly the sort of thing we find in our text that when Jesus preached, people gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left. But just when we think of this as a story, nice and safe story about Jesus as teacher, we dig a little further and discover actually, this is a story about a healer. And this is where it becomes a little more confronting, don't you think? Especially if you're not sure what to make of Christianity. This, all this bizzo about Jesus healing can be um, uncomfortable. Um, but there it is <laughs> throughout our text. Uh, some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them, etc. And then down to the bottom, Jesus uh, tells the man, you know, get up, take your mat, go home. And he got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. This is where it begins to be implausible, Right? For one thing, their method of entry doesn't seem like it's the real world. Don't you reckon? What is this business of them, I don't know, were they carrying their buddy over their shoulder and brought a big ladder? Or, you know, abseiling gear and they were, like, and then they dug a hole in the roof and let, like, is that really possible in our world? Well, probably not so possible today in this building, um, but in the first century, if you first heard this story, no one would bat an eyelid because um, many houses in antiquity had uh, external roof cases to the roof for the very simple reason that roofs were really hard to maintain in the ancient world and you often had to go up there and make repairs. So this is entirely doable. It's just that it's impolite, right? It's not the sort of thing you do. Um, but, you know, these guys don't care. They're not worried uh, about breaking etiquette, busting open roofs. They're just desperate for their friend. Uh, right now, my best mate in the world is um, in the fight for his life with cancer. And there aren't many things I wouldn't do to help him. I'd break open your roof in a flash if I thought it would help. But of course, it's the healing that's most implausible, not the entry. Um, here is Jesus with a word saying to this paralyzed man, get up, take your mat and go, and he goes. Now, I did a whole sermon on Jesus as healer uh, last year, so I'm not going to reiterate all that I said, um, but go and have a look at the MP3. I do want to just say two very quick things about this whole business of healing. I want to sort of speak to it from the historical point of view for a second. Firstly, we have exactly the kind of historical evidence we would expect if Jesus really did perform these healings. 
Just without even believing Mark's gospel as the word of God. Just historically, we do. Why do I say that? Because we have three separate sources, not copied from one another, that we can date to within about 20 years of these events that all refer to Jesus' healing. And by 60 years, we have eight separate sources. Now that, that is incredible testimony, especially as 60 years is still living memory. Uh, to compare it um, with another um, healer from the time, um, Hanina was a rabbi, you may have never heard of him, but he was a Galilean rabbi in precisely the era of Jesus. He was almost exactly the same age as Jesus and was known uh, at least to pray for people to be healed. But we have one source that mentions him, one. And it comes from 130 years after Hanina's dead. So you can see why a secular historian approaches this material and says, ah, well, whatever accounts for it, we have exactly the kind of evidence the miracle working of Jesus would leave behind. The only issue, secondly, is whether you reckon there's a creator behind the laws of nature. Um, if you don't, right, if you're pretty confident the laws of nature are all there are, there's no creator behind the laws, then it doesn't matter how much evidence there is from the historical record, you're not going to believe the historical evidence because you know the laws of nature are it, that there's no God, so miracles can't happen, so you rule out the evidence. Fine. But if you're open to the possibility that there is a creator behind the laws of nature, then really um, it's obvious a creator could heal the only thing you've really got to ask yourself is, do we have the kind of historical dent in the record that suggests Jesus did healings? And the answer to that is, yes, we do. Mark doesn't leave it there. He introduces us to the teacher, to the healer, and then socks us between the eyes, with the claim that he is the saviour who can forgive our sins. This is pretty confronting, but the passage is pretty clear. When Jesus saw their faith, the people who had brought their mate down from the roof, he said to the paralysed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now just pause, spare a thought for the people who had gone to this trouble. Um... We're not told what they thought, but we could speculate they might have been surprised and maybe disappointed uh, that, that this was Jesus' greeting. It was pretty obvious what they'd come for, don't you think? I mean, the ropes and the roof were a giveaway. But Jesus offers forgiveness. Well, we don't know what they thought, but we are told what the religious authorities thought in verse 6. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're right. No human being has the authority to forgive sins. Not even priests in the temple in Jerusalem made the claim that they could forgive uh, sins because sins is the word for our offenses before God, for our lack of love, for the creator and our lack of love for neighbor, God holds the record. 
God is the only one who can forgive. And in their view, in the view of the teachers of the law, this is cheap talk. I mean, it's blasphemous talk, yeah, but it's also cheap talk because it's easy to say your sins are forgiven, but what can you do about it, right? And this is why um, Jesus replies, which is easier, to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. See, his critics reckon it's actually easy to say the word, your sins are forgiven, because no one can see it, right? It's, it's unverifiable. You don't suddenly start glowing or anything when your sins are forgiven. So it's cheap talk. So Jesus takes the opportunity to prove that he can do the invisible thing of forgive sins by doing the verifiable and visible thing of healing the man. He says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home and we know what happened. Here is the thing uh, most beautiful about the Christian faith. Every genuine Christian will say this to you. So forgive me if you've heard it a lot. (laughs) The most beautiful thing about Christianity is not the wonderful teaching of Jesus. It's not even that he was a healer and what do you know, we have the kind of historical evidence healings would leave behind. No, the most extraordinary thing is that I can wake up every morning knowing that my sins are forgiven. Even if you doubt all this, can I ask you just to imagine what that would be like? To wake up knowing your sins are forgiven. Our culture balks at the whole idea of sin. Um, We don't like it at all. We prefer to think we're good through and through, pretty much, and mainly getting better. The events of the last week might take the shine off that a little bit, but we tend to think of ourselves as good, or at least better than that mug down the street. And so long as we can compare someone, you know, negatively to us, we're, we're doing okay, right? We're doing okay. Um, I was chatting to an ABC journalist about the Christian faith and uh, he launched into his theories on the Christian faith and he he basically said, look, I I like some of the morals of Christianity but I hate all that stuff about sin and forgiveness. That would be really crushing to the spirit to really believe that you're a sinner, right? And that you really need to depend on on God's forgiveness. He said, much, much better to tell our children, because he was about to have his first child, um, to tell our children that... Uh, they are good and they have the resources within themselves to achieve what they want to achieve. And I, I listened to him as politely as I could. And then I said, look, I would personally find that an oppressive doctrine. You say the doctrine that sin and forgiveness is oppressive. If I, I don't know how I could possibly believe I was good through and through and mostly getting better. How would I live with the counter evidence in my life by about 9 a.m. every day? It would be crushing for a child to grow up thinking, I'm good through and through, mainly getting better. Good through and through, mainly getting better. And then for all the counter-evidence in their life, what do they do with that counter-evidence? 
The dissonance would just be unbearable. Much better, I said to this journo, just to be honest about ourselves and admit we're fallen, we are sinners, and we are loved, forgiven. That's not crushing. It's both realistic and liberating. Here is the unique gift of Christianity to the world. Christ's free forgiveness. And for some that will sound like mumbo jumbo. Just, just rewind. Christ's free forgiveness. And I mean free because our text is pretty clear about it, don't you reckon? What does it say? It says, when Jesus saw their... <laughs> I mean, it would make sense if it said, and when Jesus saw their innovation, <laughs> he said, well, you deserve forgiveness. Or, or when Jesus saw their zeal. Or even when Jesus saw their love. No. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Faith is just the word trust, to depend. They depended on Jesus. And that was enough to hear those extraordinary words, son, your sins are forgiven. I just put it to you, we cannot assuage our guilt by pretending we are good through and through. We can't do it by shaming others so we feel a little bit better. Actual forgiveness is the only answer. And that comes through Jesus Christ. This passage, of course, forecasts Jesus' death on a cross. Which is where he would take the actual guilt and punishment for us. So that those words, your sins are forgiven can be real today. So Mark introduces us to the teacher. You dig, dig a little further and it turns out it's a healer we're dealing with. You dig a little further and it's the savior who forgives sins. But the last layer is the strangest and the most confronting. Dig a little further and we meet God. God. What do I mean? Mark's gospel has been preparing us for this thought from the opening paragraphs. They go back and listen to the sermon one that Bruce preached because he made the point that from the opening paragraphs, Mark, the author, quotes Old Testament passages about one day God showing up. Okay? And then Mark applies that to Jesus showing up. It's subtle, but it's unmissable if you know your Old Testament. And so we, when we come to our story in the very next chapter, we are primed. We are on the lookout for how, in what way could this teacher and healer possibly be God showing up? Well, in our story, Jesus claims to do something Everyone knew only God can do. And our passage underlines this. These religious authorities in the house in Capernaum pick it up. They're exactly right. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? Indeed. And instead of backtracking, you know, Jesus saying, oh, no, no, I didn't mean that. Oh, my, forgive me. Jesus amplifies the point by responding to them by applying a title to himself that no one would dare apply to himself. It's the title, Son of Man. I want you to know, he says to the religious authorities, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, you and I read the Son of Man, it doesn't sound very impressive, but to a Jewish audience, this is well known. This is from the Old Testament. There's one Son of Man with authority in the Old Testament, and it's in this passage, Daniel chapter 7, written centuries before Jesus, and you'll see the point. Uh, Daniel has this vision of a heavenly being. In my vision, I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. This mysterious son of man somehow enjoys the thing that only God can possibly enjoy. The worship of every nation, people, and language. And that's the title Jesus uses of himself. At the very point, he also does what everyone knew only God could do. Forgive sins. Now, lest you think this is marginal, Jesus uses Son of Man at several key points through the gospel, and the last time we hear it, it becomes the cause of his execution. Here's the trial of Jesus in Mark chapter 14. The high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and... You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. That language is straight out of Daniel 7. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need to hear any more witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Now, the important thing to spot here is that calling yourself Messiah or even Son of God was not a blasphemy. Jews in the first century and our Orthodox Jewish friends today are still expecting the Messiah. They pray for the coming of the Messiah every day, our Jewish friends. And that Messiah is called the Son of God in a, a titular way. It's a way of talking about him as king. That's not the blasphemy. The blasphemy is Jesus goes, yes, I'm Messiah. And by the way, remember Daniel 7, the Son of Man who will be worshipped by all the nations and come in the clouds? That is me. God in the flesh. Let me land this bumpy plane. I told you at the outset that I uh, m mistook Aaron Rodgers for Adam, who knows what. Um, it's a mistake you only make once. Um, I may have also told you um, before, I can't recall, um, about three lads that hopped on a bus in Detroit in the 1930s and tried to pick a fight with the man sitting by himself at the back of the bus. 
And the lads insulted him, but the, but the man just was very calm and peaceful and didn't respond to the insults until he stood up to get off the bus. And this man handed these young lads his business card. And they read the words, Joe Lewis, boxer. For those of you who don't know your boxing history, they had just tried to pick a fight with the man who just a few years later would be the heavyweight boxing champion of the world from 1937 to 1949. They were in the presence of greatness and had no idea. Now, I don't mean to compare Jesus to a boxer, okay. But Mark's gospel is like being handed his card. And when you read this, you find yourself in the presence of greatness, in the presence of a teacher who wowed people who drew crowds, were introduced to the healer. A healer uniquely from the ancient world whose deeds have left a genuine historical dent in the record. And we're introduced to the Savior who forgives sins, not through pretending, not through blaming others, because of his death and resurrection for us. And above all, of course, the most confronting, we're introduced to God. Mark's gospel ends up giving us front row seats to the greatest show on earth. God showing up in the flesh. The one worthy of worship. Uh, years ago, the atheist and um, famous Oxford Don C.S. Lewis, who went on to write uh, the Narnia series and plenty of other things, actually came to his own realization as an atheist. Kind of ruined his life um, in some ways. His own realization about Jesus Christ. And C.S. Lewis ended up becoming one of the greatest defenders of the Christian faith, certainly in the 20th century. And in his book, Mere Christianity, he, he describes his own confrontation with Jesus Christ, but he puts it out to us as a challenge. And here I end. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. I invite you this morning to come and drink from the deep well of Mark's gospel. The rich, life-giving water 
that we find in the teacher, the healer, the saviour, who is God himself. So Lord, will you please give each one of us clear thinking. Help us to assess these things with our best insight. But Lord, please also give us soft hearts. Help us to see our own preferences, our own experiences, our own doubts. And help us to come to Jesus Christ and find in him the teacher, the healer, the saviour, the one worthy of all worship. Hear us, dear Lord, we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thank you, John. Uh, Folks, we've got a few moments, as we said at the top of the service, for some question and answer. So if you do have a a question that's on your mind about the Christian faith, it's kind of on topic, it'd be great for you to fire that into the, uh, the number that is up on the screen behind you. And then we'll chip away at as many of those questions as we can. Now, Nath, do we have a first question? First cab off the rank. Okay, this one's for you, John. <laughs> Actually, they're all for you. Uh, here we go. Why would Mark wait 35 years to write his gospel? Why not do it immediately or during? Um, couldn't the details change across that time? Well, of course, across that time, people were preaching this message uh, in Jerusalem and elsewhere where, where this had all happened. So very difficult for it to have changed dramatically, even, even just on simple historical grounds, very difficult for it to have tra- changed dramatically. Um, but the, uh, you know, the other thing to keep in mind is that only about 10% of people could read and write in uh, antiquity. And so your first instinct wasn't to write things down because that preserved it only for the elites. And one thing that we know about early Christianity it w- was not elite. And so oral tradition, the rehearsing of this material verbally, was the preferred method. Um, because you, you prepare it you prepare it in writing, and, and really it's only for 10%. So why was it, I mean, actually, I've had historians say to me, why, why were the Gospels written down so soon? I know that doesn't sound like the sort of question you might ask, but it is for a historian, because these were oral cultures, they were perfectly happy to rely on oral traditions, to rehearse the traditions over and over and over. Why was it written down so soon? And our best explanation, and this comes from uh, a, a wonderful scholar called Richard Borkham, is that it's just the sheer expansion of Christianity. Christianity so rapidly expanded in this 35 years that it was very difficult to get eyewitnesses, you know, to send them over to Rome and then up to Syria and down to Alexandria and Egypt. And so written testimony that people knew was the testimony of an eyewitness was the easiest way to transfer the message. And um, so nearing Peter's end, uh, or maybe even slightly after Peter's end, Mark, who was a well-known traveling companion of Peter, wrote down, his gospel. Cool. So we actually think 35 years is really a, a long period of time, but one way of thinking about it is they were, they were really writing down stuff that was being spoken of and preached all the time and all over the place. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Uh, let's, ooh, next question for you, John. Why is healing the exception now and not the norm? Um, I don't know. I'm having words with God about that at the moment. Um, All I really know confidently is that the Bible doesn't think miracles are the norm. It doesn't. Um, There are sort of weird, dramatic clusters of miracles at certain key points. 
and the most dramatic cluster occurs in Jesus. And then the cluster is nowhere near as common immediately after Jesus. You find a few examples. But when when you get to the letters of the New Testament, you get very little reference to healing. In fact, what you actually get is more reference to praying for each other to be healed, mm. not the kind of wonder working that Jesus did or even the, the apostles did. And so then we, we ask the question, um, what accounts for the cluster or what's the meaning of this incredible cluster of miracles around Jesus? And the answer, and actually I did a whole sermon on this last year, so, but the answer is, is quite simple. It was, it was part of Jesus' own preaching about the future kingdom of God that the healings themselves were little pictures of the restoration of everything in the kingdom of God. See, Jesus preached that the kingdom of God would come and it would bring justice, it would bring love, it would bring wholeness into the world. And the miracles, Jesus himself said, were little signs. We might think of them as previews to the the feature film, little trailers before the film comes, um, indicating that one day in the kingdom, God will mend everything. Um, but we get to see that mending in miniature in the Gospels. Cool. So, so more kind of pointing forward to something that was coming rather than setting up an expectation that this would happen at every point in the present. It is striking when you read the history that the early church never thought Jesus was setting up a faith healing program. Mm. They looked back on these as the signs of the coming kingdom. Okay, uh, I think we've got time for maybe one more, so let's go with this. Verse 6, how would Mark know uh, what teachers of the law were thinking to themselves? Uh, I don't know whether that means how would Jesus know, but how would Mark know that Jesus knew what the teachers of the law were thinking to themselves? Yeah, Um, so the simple answer is um, Jesus knew, right? So in the moment, and, and and I should have pointed out that Peter was in the room when this happened. And Peter is the witness behind Mark's gospel, okay? So, you know, Peter was there when Jesus, knowing what was in their thoughts, answered. So obviously the answer Jesus gives, uh, why do you think those thoughts, is proof to everyone in the room that Jesus already knew what their thoughts were, okay? So Peter was there. And as I said, um, as Bruce um, uh, laid out in week one, um, We know that Mark's gospel is the written account of what Peter had been preaching for those 30 or so years. Mm. Uh, So the chain uh, of testimony is pretty tight. Okay. Uh, I reckon we can squeeze one more in if we've got one more. Do we have one more, Nath? Okay, here we go. Last one for you, John. What makes Jesus different to other miraculous healers throughout history? Where does their power come from? (laughs) I hope that's a quick one. (laughs) Good luck. Yeah. Um, so I should go out on a limb and say I think there probably are other healers um, through history um, and I would say uh, it's, it's all the creator's work where there's a real healing I'm even open to you know, there being you know, Hindu Swami alleged healers um, who are able to heal um, I don't think it will have anything to do with Hinduism I think it would be just God's grace toward the person in need the, the thing that I would challenge um, behind the question is it, is, it is unusual that we have nothing like the evidence for any other healing or any other healer. That, that's why I put up on the um, screen the well-established conclusion. We have eight separate sources attesting to Jesus' healings within living memory of him. Okay? The close parallel of Rabbi Hanina that I mentioned 
We have one source, and it's from 130 years later. So I'm open to there being a Hanina. Maybe he prayed for people and they got healed. But what I'm saying is one source, 130 years later, is nothing like the evidence we have in the case of Jesus. So that's why whatever you make of other healings, there's this weird cluster that has left behind quite extraordinary uh, evidence.